0: Welcome to the 14th episode of the Known Pleasures podcast. This is the podcast where we discuss the music of the post-punk slash new wave movement of the late 70s and early 80s. And if you want to hear the full versions of the songs featured in this podcast, you can click on the Spotify link and hear the playlist created just for this episode. And now here's Patrick to introduce today's artist. There are a handful
1: of ordinary-looking blokes behind two of Australia's most anthemic songs, Throw Your Arms Around Me and Holy Grail. Pub, rock, gods. It's a decent legacy, but for some of us who were around in the early 1980s, Hunters were and could have been so much more. Formed amid the frenzy of the Melbourne New Wave music scene, the brutal, hypnotic, tribal funk of this six- or eight- or ten-piece band, depending on when you saw them, was as massive and as thrilling a sound as we'd ever heard, and their first three albums were as exciting as any of the era. And that's even before you try to unpack the improbably disturbing film clip for the early single, Talking to a Stranger. So, what was it all about? Pub rock legends? Or as big a disappointment as Australian post-punk has witnessed? Ladies and gentlemen, with a line of beer running down your weak little chin let's discuss the early life and times
2: of hunters and collectors. A
0: of beer running down chitty chitty.
2: Very nice. I like it. It's been a while. It guys, a while. we have to address the elephant in the room. It's been a long time. <laughs> where have you been, Paddy? <laughs> well, when you weren't writing that intro, where were you?
1: Uh, I, I, um, my day job is as a book editor and I was working on the memoir of cricketer Shane Warne. Right, which is due out in uh, early October. In all good bookstores. In all good bookstores. So
0: Excellent. tell us, what's Sean? Warren, what's Sean? What's Sean? Wayne? What's <laughs> Writer really like? <laughs> <laughs> what's <laughs> Shane <laughs> Warren really like? Shane, Who is Little Shane Warren?
1: Shane Warren <laughs> <laughs> is um, a very nice, friendly fellow. My dealings with him were that he was, um, yeah, he was, he, he was a really good guy. He's like really a beer
2: good. in a ciggy. Uh
1: definitely a Siggy. Yeah. Bit yeah. of Botox? Uh no, no Botox. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, that's what he told you. I was up close. There was yeah. there, there's no Botox.
0: Smooth forehead? No. <laughs> is is he still dating uh Hugh Grant's ex wife? Oh, Graham, that's that's long gone. <laughs> is it? Yeah, that's long finished. He's on Tinder now. Oh really? Mm. Mm,
2: mm. He's a Tinder dater. Tinder a t- Tinder dater?
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's um He's still friends with Elizabeth Hurley. Nice. To, to she answer, seems nice. To answer your question. Yeah. Oh. They had a nice relationship and they still get along well. So you've been busy. I have. I have. But still listening to the early Hunters and Collectors. Too
2: stuff. busy for post-punk, but not too busy for Hunters and Collectors. <laughs> That's right. So yeah, Hunters and Collectors, One of our, all three of us would agree. Very, very favourite bands of the era.
1: Mm, definitely.
2: First three albums. What we're going to talk about
1: first three albums, first two EPs or 12 inch singles.
2: Yep, three years, would we say? It's about, yep, about yep, that size of it. Yeah. Yep, yep. So if you've it's come mm. to hear talk of Holy Grail and others, mm. it's unlikely. We won't get there. We won't get there. However,
1: except, except a touch disparagingly. Indeed. Perhaps.
2: Goes without saying.
1: Mm. Um, yes. so, so where will we start? Well, we could start in Benalla.
2: It's a good place to start, um, rural Victoria.
1: Where Mark Seymour, singer of the band, was born. Grew up in country Victoria, moving around quite a bit. His parents were school teachers, and, yeah, so he lived in a few different country towns, I believe, and then uh, he ended up at Melbourne University, Ormond College, one of the posh residential colleges there. That's not where you went. No, I went to a less posh residential college. But still posh. (laughs) Well, posh-ish. And, uh, yeah, so Ormond College, Australia's longest-serving prime minister, Robert Menzies, went there. That's the kind of place.
2: Liberal voting college.
1: That kind of place, yes. And that's where he met a young lad... By the name of John Archer, bass player. Bass player, yep. And the two of them, and a medical student, or maybe an, an, an intern. I'm not sure exactly where he was at the time. But the future drummer of the band, um, Doug Falconer, and the three of them formed a band called the Schnorts. The Schnorts. A short-lived band, and then they formed the Jetsons or Jetsons, mm-hmm. and they released.
2: They had a female kind of singer. A yeah, they had. They released the single. They had a female singer. <laughs> But they pretty much, as I recall, had the most of the lineup of Hunters was in the jet zones. So Robert Miles, Ray Tosti, yep. was also in it. So, and so Mark Seymour wasn't singing; he was playing guitar in this. No, no. Uh, the single was called "Newspaper" in 1980, and I think it's a bit of a precursor to the Hunters sound because it doesn't have a chorus. Yes, yeah. it's, it's quite <laughs> linear. Um, you know, they caused a bit of a stir in Melbourne at the time, I mm. think, around that time with the models and a few other people. Do, do you like the song? I don't mind it. I don't mind it. It doesn't really suggest what's going to come shortly afterwards, but but apart from the no chorus part, yeah, yeah. to me Hunters has always been about the bass, like John Archer's mm, bass yeah, pretty yeah, much yeah. underpins everything they ever did from day one and it's it's sort of not really as dominant in that song, but it's an interesting uh, mm. introduction. It is unusually poppy given mm. what what was to come and it's got hints of
1: early talking heads maybe. At times?
2: Well, I think that as a lot of people are of that era have said, Talking Heads' stuff was kind of in the air. Um, a couple of guys that I know of from that era would say that it was just, you know, part of the collective consciousness mm. of, of the of the times. I mean, Talking Heads had a big influence in Australia, Graham. I mean, we've talked mm-hmm. about this before, even in Brisbane. Yeah, absolutely. The first few albums were like, obviously resonated with a lot of people. You're a few years older than us, so you'd remember the impact that had. Mm. But and I think
0: it, in regard to hunters and collectors, it was particularly the percussion. So it, yeah. was, it seems like a lot of people had heard Remain in Light, yeah, and uh, and, and gone down that road. Well, it was uh, a very influential album. Still yeah. is. Mm. And hunters really, really personified that for me. Mm. Apart from the bass and everything, there was just so much going on drums and percussion-wise.
2: But it was very linear, wasn't it? It was kind of, there wasn't like verse chorus. No,
0: yeah. No, no. It was just like a thing that rolled on oh. and on and on. Oh. But,
2: yeah, I don't remember an Australian band that had a percussionist prior to that, not I mean, that I remember.
0: Uh, there, there probably was, but not in New Wave.
2: No. Yeah. Maybe, Maybe some.
1: Joe, Joe, and the Falcons. <laughs> one, one of those kind of bands. Maybe
2: one of the disco bands of the yeah. era. Yeah. That's a good point. They did, uh, percussion was an important part of what they did, which was uh, Greg Pirano, who we'll get to shortly, who wasn't in the Jet Zones.
1: No, that's right. That's right. And I think um, they were working on a new band, which after the Jet Zones failed to...
2: Take off? Take
1: off, yes. <laughs> uh, and uh, that's when singer Mark Seymour had the idea of maybe getting this cool friend of his, Greg Pirano, on board.
2: He of the whale sounds. Yes. Yes, what, what's Greg's uh, little bit of a backstory there?
1: Well, I don't really know. I mean, he was quite arty, quite eccentric, and I think he brought a definite look to the band um, mm. the way Mark Simon described it in his uh, memoir, 13-Ton Theory. Greg Pirano had done serious mirror time. So, <laughs> <laughs>
2: That so could mean a lot of things.
1: <laughs> yeah, but <laughs> Pirano always had a fantastic image. and mm. quite.
2: He's quite a striking-looking guy even mm. now. You see him around. Right, okay. around the traps these days. Even. But
1: it was it was a little bit of a question as to what Piranha was going to do and then Piranha had the idea of this hot water cylinder as a percussion.
2: Well, they uh, were he- they were all heavily influenced by Cannes and the Krautrock scene at this point, from, mm. as I understand it. And so they wanted to do something that kind of emulated that. It was very arty, at the beginnings.
0: Mm. So um, was it
2: a hot water cylinder?
0: Yeah, it was and an I actual... Thought it, I thought it was a gas cylinder. I think it was, depending on the night you saw them, I'm wondering whether he progressed from the uh, hot water cylinder to the gas cylinder (laughs) later on, once they started earning more money Get get a ream, (laughs) (laughs) they said to him
2: Now you're earning some bucks Greg,
0: (laughs) (laughs) get yourself a ream Install a ream Install
2: a ream (laughs) (laughs)
1: Uh, It's certainly described um, as a hot water cylinder in, in 13 time of theory oh okay I um, rem-
2: I'm i sure I saw them with a the gas uh, like you know an LPG thing yeah with some well. kind of gas I thought we had an arsenal of
0: such things that he Possibly. could call on mm. yeah yeah but, but I, I just remember at the time and this is getting to it, to when we, we saw them live was the the word around was like have you seen Hunters and Collectors they've got a percussionist with a gas cylinder on stage mm. so it was like that was the it was thing. a gimmick yeah, yeah. yeah. well it, it, it might have been a tad gimmicky but I think at the time it was just like you know, wow mm. if, 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 imagine mm. doing that yeah, know, yeah. I, I don't think anyone was heating cylinders at that point. No,
2: no. <laughs> no. Well, this is pre-SPK and, uh, and anybody that I can think of that were doing this sort yeah, of stuff. Yeah. But, yeah, but the thing is that they had a concept, and I think someone said something about the Jet Zones and the new band that Mark had formed was a far more kind of rigorous concept and it was all around almost like a collective idea. Mm. Everybody was equal and, and there was going to be a lot of people involved and mm. it was a far more arty concept. Mm.
1: Yeah, it was a very student-y kind of mm. notion, the collective, like everyone sharing in the song, writing royalties, etc., uh, including the sound engineer, the mm. live sound engineer, which was an absolutely extraordinary concept Yeah, and a really clever concept in certain ways, although Mark Seymour would come to be quite frustrated by those kind of restrictions. But the really amazing thing for me about Hunters and Collectors is the fact that they were a bunch of blokes who started rehearsing together. They were just mucking around like hundreds, thousands of bands. Pounds. Do. Australia and worldwide were doing influenced
2: by. This was about 81. 81, yeah. Yep.
1: Influenced by the punk stuff, the early post punk stuff, the kraut rock stuff. But instead of learning as they went and kind of picking up skills along the way, they somehow managed to, at their first gig, be basically a fully fledged, fully formed eight piece band or whatever they were. The number of members in the band is a slightly fluid kind of arrangement. But the bass player, John Archer, bought a PA and started building upon it.
2: So the sound was always important, super important, so that they sounded exactly as they wanted to sound.
1: Well, they did all their rehearsals at the Crystal Ballroom, which became known as the CV Ballroom subsequently, um, in St Kilda. So that's where they rehearsed with their own PA Mm. and that's also where they played their first gig. So they were able to set every last knob on the PA exactly where they wanted it well, they had for l- the first note of their it's first amazing, song. Robert Miles, amazing. Robert Miles, the
2: sound engineer or creative director, whatever he is, was there from the start. He was in the jet Sounds oh. as well. So from the very beginning, the front of house sound was crucial to them. So yeah, yeah. they... They arrived fully formed, which yeah, was, yeah. as you say, very unusual for any band anywhere. Usually yeah. there's support slots getting better, learning what you're doing, but they seem to have this concept. For a band mm. who later on played down any kind of idea of, of art and some sort of thought process, they were extremely well organised and knew exactly what they wanted to
0: sound like. Mm. But mm. that first show, how was it attended? Was it full? If I'm understanding the story
1: correctly, their first gig was a benefit gig for Snakefinger, the American... Yep. Uh, yeah. ..what... Was in, in, the, in the wave artist, the prog
2: art rock yeah. band, very strange, like a zapper kind of thing. Yeah, yep. yeah.
1: Who had had a heart attack, I think, in Melbourne, I think the previous week, and mm. he'd been attended to by Doug Falconer, who was is a medical a qualified. Student, or, um, well, is now, yeah, or yeah. certainly close to being a qualified doctor. Mm.
0: Um, but, and they also but, had someone who had a gas cylinder there. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> Give me oxygen. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. So <laughs> no, not the ream, the other one. <laughs> yeah. Greg, stop hitting it. <laughs>
1: And, uh, yeah, so it was it was very well attended. So there was... So the, he
2: actually was involved in that? In what? In, in the resuscitation of... of, of
1: uh, yeah. Wow. So their first gig was extremely well attended and the beauty of their music was that it was all about extended jams, which was the whole... That's why they were always going to come across better live than in the studio. And it was a massive sound because there mm. were a tonne of people on stage with a brass section, a percussionist, a really chunky dirty bass sound a singer who was kind of really raw passionate voice
2: and a beautifully tuned pa yeah absolutely which mm-hmm. you know normally when you're a young band starting out you've got the support you, role
0: you're hiring the pa
2: or you're borrowing or, you, it or you're someone. just getting half the desk from the main band who yeah. kind of screw you over yeah, and, and, and right. don't want you to sound too good yeah yeah won't let yeah. you touch anything so i mean that that in itself is really interesting in 1981 Mm. Yeah, yeah, as part yeah. of the nascent post-punk scene as it yeah. was in Australia.
1: It was the opposite of the DIY mm. post-punk thing of just turn up and, you know, it'll be fine and, mm. and you know, being organised was virtually a kind crime. Kind uncool, yeah. So yeah. they
2: were very considered mm. yeah, at that yeah. point, yeah. yeah.
1: Actually, Mark Seymour in his book says, um, the PA became a crucial part of our show. Its importance cannot be overstated. It was because we were properly marked up and loud right from the very start that we sniffed some real theatrical power Most bands begin by being acoustically symbolic. We weren't. We were right on top of our game.
2: Yeah. Well, even if you come across some live footage or live recordings of those early gigs, there's three songs on YouTube. um, They're very good. The sound is great. I mean, for somebody just recording it on, you know, I was going to sound on their phone, but such things didn't exist in Mm -hmm. those days. Somebody just recording it, the sound is very full and clean and, you know, it's obviously not just a ramshackle gig from from day one. Mm. Um, No, no. I wouldn't have seen them till eighty. Two person. Mm. I don't know whether you guys did. You being a Melbourne person, Patrick, you may have come across them earlier. Yeah, maybe early 82. Yeah. But um, the story of how they got signed to um, Mushroom is mm. an interesting one because he must have seen them live somewhere and just thought, right. He being? Michael Godinski set up a brand new label, the White Label, to sign them and mm. basically, I think, begged them to sign with him. Mm. And uh, which they subsequently did.
1: And gave them complete artistic freedom from, from, from the recording. I think it was to, called Carte Blanche in to the case. Yes. Well, that's right. <laughs> it was extraordinary for someone who was as interested in commercial success as mm. Michael Godinski and Mushroom Records were because they had proper, you know, pop bands on the label to give this bunch of blokes with their where's the hit single, you know, sound. Where's the chorus? Yeah. <laughs> <Other> and <than> alone, where's <laughs> the right. hit single? Yeah. That's right. The first EP, the first 12-inch single, World of Stone, for instance. Yep, three-track
2: EP. Mm.
1: There was nothing remotely commercial about that. I mean, no. the title track goes for, what, eight minutes?
2: released in January 82 so very early in 82 obviously recorded in
0: late in um mm. with oh, yeah. Tony Cohen I bought that. Yeah, Um, me too. I was on the Gold Coast with a friend of mine and uh, I went into a record shop and uh, he was going to buy an album and I was going to buy an album and I looked into my wallet and I didn't have enough money for an album. (laughs) So you said, I'll (laughs) take an EP. And I kept looking around and I saw World of Stone and this may be a little bit later because I think I was familiar with talking to a stranger at this point. So I may have bought this a little bit later but I picked it up and the price was right basically. Well, the cover of it was really
2: interesting. It was kind of like a statue, like a gothic (laughs) Mm. Um, you know, the kinds of things you see in Notre Dame covered with sort of netting. With netting, yeah. Yeah, and it was really intriguing and it kind of, what I used to love about records in those days was it gave you an idea of an inkling of what was inside and what you might hear, mm. and it's exactly what I expected to hear. But that song was thrashed on independent radio, mm. like yeah, yeah, and it was slow and moody, mm. and it really got your attention. Like, who it, it, are these it, it, guys?
0: It one of those songs that, that builds up, like yeah, the, the, the chorus is really big, but um, but it's not really a chorus, is it? It's just no. a bass riff. <laughs> There's no vocals or anything. Yeah, yeah, really weird, and lots of percussion. Mm. Um, yeah, and, and like a <laughs> once again a gas cylinder being hit in the chorus. But uh what amazing me about a lot of hunters and collectors though is the guitar is quite thin it's it's like he's playing a a little funky thing Mm. but it's not really distorted or anything it's quite clean and yeah well
2: that's the other interesting thing about them that guy was obviously ray was playing the guitar the the guitar early on they're very disco kind of riffs Mm. Mm. but but that was kind of a weird thing to be doing at that stage like i don't know where that came from and when you see footage of those early gigs people are dancing. And I remember hearing this stuff and people, you know, and thinking, yeah, people will dance to this, but people didn't really dance at punk new wave gigs. They kind of stood there Mm. and just kind of, like, judged. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You know, no one... (laughs) We were a judgmental. Judgy, very judgy. But now you see footage and people are kind of grooving and even the band are kind of, like, getting down and kind of dancing and it was kind of really refreshing. Yeah, Yeah. yeah. So there was definitely a dance element to what they were trying to do anyway. Mm.
1: Yeah. It was meant to be hypnotic. Yeah. Hypnotic tribal funk. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. It was definitely meant to be danced to to the extent that people for, like for us instance, a Melbourne audience. <laughs> <laughs> well a Melbourne audience was gonna dance less than probably most other in audiences other audience. in Australia.
0: Well that was a three track EP. Yes. World yeah. of Stone, Watcher and Loing
2: Um, released in January 82, reached number 50 in the Australian charts, yeah. which is pretty weird at the time given there would have been no mainstream radio mm. play. would yeah. have only been Triple R, Triple Z, whatever else. Triple, was J. Out there. Triple mm. J. Yeah, and so almost immediately they had an impact.
1: Yeah, and I think it might have been their highest charting single mm. um, prior to Say Goodbye.
2: Their later successes. Hmm. So we we're, yeah. so we're all in that, agreement that that was a bit of a watershed moment in Australian post-punk mm, because it was I quite so. different.
1: Mm, mm. Well, it didn't sound like anyone else in the world mm, to me.
2: That I was aware of? No no, 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 that's right. Well, we didn't really know their influences at the
1: time. No, no, that's I right. I mean, there, there may be... Influences from bands like Can Annoy,
2: and Well, the an- name an- comes from a Can song, yeah, yeah. so Hunters and Collectors. So that—that's yeah, yeah. I'd never heard of Can at that
0: point. Well, I'm just glad that I didn't have enough money to <laughs> buy an album on that particular. <laughs> to day. buy yeah. that Eagles album yeah, you, you really, really wanted, <laughs> <laughs> it was a financial decision on my behalf. And, uh, you and were trying so. to buy in the long
2: run, mm. I think in the Eagles. Low, yeah. And those, I can't—I'm going to have to buy this. I'm sorry. <laughs> like an EP was probably like three ninety-nine in those days. Yeah. A twelve-inch EP as well. Yeah. So the sound was big, yeah, and really nice and thick.
1: And unlike a lot of early Australian post-punk recordings, it sounded really full mm. and it wasn't remotely thin, for instance.
2: No, it had that bass in it. Like mm. I said, John Archer's bass is is the bedrock of everything they've ever done and what made them very interesting. A little bit of background about him. He was a fan of Chris Squire, who was the, um, the bass player from Yes. Oh, ah,
1: okay. thank you
2: and The Cure, they were the only two influences that I could kind of find about him, about his back note.
1: Uh In terms of what he claims as influences?
2: Yeah, yeah, which is really interesting because he's got a really distinctive style. He always plays with a pick. He has a really kind of sharp attack sort of sound on his bass. He doesn't treat it with many effects, but it's right up in the mix and mm. it really punches you. And seeing them live, it really literally does punch yeah, you. It yeah. kicks you in the guts. Yeah. Um, mm. He's got a really distinctive sound. and For me, he's probably the best Australian bass player yeah, from, yeah. From, from my kind of style of music anywhere that yeah, I've ever yeah. heard
1: that's where the PA once again comes goes into back to the very first gig like, and the very first like, show everything
2: yeah yeah, yeah.
1: Mm. because if the bass didn't sound right mm. it would be completely different and just well, there's really not a lot of lack, much lacking conviction there's not much else going on no, in no.
2: their early stuff. There's a bit of keyboard sound effects, some interesting guitar. It's really the bass and drums that's mm. just underpinning everything they do. Yeah, yeah. To this day probably. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah.
2: Um, So, yeah, we like World of Stone. We like World we're of Stone. We're fans of that. Graham bought it. I think I bought it too. I did buy it. Mm. Um So the hype was building.
1: The hype was building, yeah. I saw them live for the first time between the World of Stone EP and the first album mm. and they were just about, I mean, I was only... Seventeen, eighteen. So to say they were the best band I'd ever seen is not, you know, really
2: pushing p- pushing them. Better than Gary Newman? Oh, you didn't see him? <laughs> no, I forgot. Right. I forgot.
1: Yeah. No, um better than Hush. Who I'd seen at the Horsham Town Hall. <laughs> <laughs> Hang on a minute. <laughs> when that's I was that's
2: a big, big call. Big call. <laughs> you obviously hadn't seen Sherbet either.
1: I missed I, I missed Sherbet, but I was going with a few friends of mine. I was going to see bands every Friday, every Saturday night. So by April or May 1982, I'd seen several bands. So and the first so, time you
2: saw them was 82. Yeah, yeah, so, and
1: yeah, so March, April, 82, or whatever. So and,
2: after the first album came out. Yeah,
1: so I was completely flabbergasted by floored. Flawed. I was floored by just how massive and how compelling the sound was and they had some absolutely irresistible songs like, like Run, Run, Run which you know they would play that for 10 or 12 minutes. Long whatever.
2: songs, that was the other thing that was mm. different too. They played long, yeah, songs. long songs. No songs. No one really did that. And
1: they would just build and build and build and build mm. and they were ideal live songs. So when the debut album came out, I was fractionally disappointed, which was really? what, uh, July 82. D- July 82 I, th- I believe, just because it couldn't possibly match the live power
0: of these songs, which were written to be played live. Yeah, yeah I, I get what you're saying, but um. I've never agreed with people when they say that uh, you know such and such an album hasn't been able to reproduce what this band is like live. Mm-hmm. I always think that's good. A band live should be different to how they are on record. Uh, listening to a record is a different listening experience. Mm-hmm. When someone plays live, you know there's usually a bit more energy. You know, the, the band might be playing a tad faster. Uh, yeah, the, the, an album to me is a bit more about clarity. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely.
2: I thought the first album was fantastic. I mean, yeah, yeah, obviously I, yeah. um, the first single per se, like a solo standalone single, was Talking to a Stranger, which still is catchy as hell. It's just that bass line. What is it? I don't yeah, know what he's yeah, doing, but I when I hear it now and I heard them doing it, a couple of years ago on some benefit gig or whatever. And it was still catchy as anything, even though it was kind of weird to hear Mark Seymour singing it now. Mm and uh, even playing the little guitar bits was Strange, but it's still a very catchy song.
0: Yeah, yeah. Do you like Talking To A Stranger? I
1: love Talking To A Stranger. On occasion? And I really like the album as well. It's just that I was hoping that I was going to absolutely adore the album because I just love them live so much. Mm. And I think they were trying to replicate the live experience and Mm. with 1982 studio technology that was never going to happen. From memory, the album did take quite a long time to record. I think they struggled with trying to kind of nail that live experience and I think they did a really good job. It's just that it, it was never going to meet my expectations. But, yeah, I think Talking to a Stranger is, is fantastic. On that
2: note, I've heard a demo, sorry, to go back a little bit of World of Stone, which they obviously sent to um, Michael Gudinski. And it's pretty damn identical to the World of Stone that we know. So it'd be interesting to go back and have a listen to that to see what their version of it was. Yeah, As yeah. opposed to what they ended up doing in the studio with a producer. And I don't know that there's a great deal of difference between the two. So I'm not sure that they were able to yeah, yeah, reproduce yeah. that energy that you get in a
0: live situation in the studio. Yeah, yeah. Talking to a stranger did quite well, but it also did well in Canada, I think.
2: It did well in New Zealand. Yeah. 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 Everything seems to do a little bit better in New Zealand. Yeah, the yeah. audiences there are a little bit more accepting yeah. than Australia. I don't think it charted in Australia from memory. No, I, no, I didn't, remember no. the video, which was a Richard Lowenstein video. Mm. And it was really kind of weird and post-apocalyptic and Mark Seymour had this elastic band around his nose yeah. and he was singing his in the shower well. yeah. and it was just like the weirdest <laughs> video and there was <laughs> lots of do. sitting around fires and masks and kind of stop, start animation stuff. Mm. It's a great video. Yeah, what yeah. it means, I've no idea, but it doesn't really matter. It was 1982, so yeah, yeah. it was yeah. the 80s.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's interesting that that was obviously the most commercial song on the album, mm. and I think they played it on Countdown, the Australian. Yeah, you have seen the clip. You know, um, different places. Yeah. yeah, and I think Molly
0: uh, liked it. Yeah. Yep, yep. Oh, sorry, that was a bit Australian, wasn't it? The <laughs> the host of Australian
1: music show Countdown, Ian Molly Meldrum.
0: Yes, he liked really liked it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
2: It yes. got a bit of a push, but for yeah, whatever yeah, reason, it, yeah. it sort of built the hype around them, but yeah. maybe didn't break them into the mm, but, the charts.
1: But as we know, a lot of post-punk bands in Australia as well as elsewhere were terrified of, of having hit singles. Yeah. So, for instance, Talking to a Stranger, the opening two lines are in French. Yeah. So, you know, souvent pour s'amuser les hommes d'équipage, uh, often to amuse themselves, the men in you know, a carriage. Is that, and is it's that like the direct translation? Okay. So it makes no sense as well as everything else.
2: <laughs> but this, this goes to what we might, we talked about earlier. Who wrote the lyrics to that song? I think Mark Seymour did. Because that wasn't
1: always the case. No, no. Um, Which I've only just learned tonight. Yeah, we were talking about this um, before, before. Off air, I think, yes, is the air, tec- yes, technical air, yes. term. Greg Pirano, uh wrote some of the lyrics and I think maybe others did as well. So lyrics that I have always associated very much with Mark Seymour because he sings them with such conviction. Songs like Boo Boo Kiss on this album. Uh, yeah, the lyrics by Pirano. Wow,
0: that's good. I love so. Boo Boo Kiss, by the way. Yeah yeah. He, I mean. mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. He he bought the art. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was definitely. Yeah, um,
2: I mean, if you ever get a chance to read Mark Seymour's book, his stories about Greg Perano's early days are great reading. Yeah, he was a really interesting guy. <laughs> yeah, still is an interesting guy to this day. Um, I love the first album. Yeah,
0: yeah. In, but, any any highlights from the first album? Uh,
2: yeah, I'm one of these guys that'll go the first three songs: "Bang, bang, bang," "Talking to a Stranger," "Alligator Engine," and "Skin, skin, of, skin, of, our skin of Our Teeth" is teeth. just huge. <laughs> Builds and builds and builds and builds. I do like the second side as well, um, but for those who bought the album then, you'll remember that there was a second 12-inch that came with it, yeah. which was sort of another album, which was Tender Kinder Baby and then the B side of that was Run, Run, Run. Mm. So it was kind of like a double album, but it was really an album with a single. Yeah. And yeah. Um, Run, Run, Run is, is a great song, um, as you said. It just builds and builds. Yeah,
1: yeah. My favourites are probably Talking to a Stranger, Scream Who and Run, Run, Run. <coughs> Happened to be with three songs that were chosen by Virgin in the UK for the album release of the first Hunters and Collectors album. So yeah. when, the album when they signed with Virgin, yeah, when the album was released in the UK, which Virgin is meant, decided well, to well, the
2: following ditch. year they signed with Virgin, yeah. Yeah. 83.
1: Virgin decided to ditch.
2: Most of the five, album? Five.
1: Of five of the, of the, the tracks? Eight, Tracks. Uh, I did want to say about the artwork on the Hums and Collectors self-titled album That's it was a gatefold sleeve. You mentioned that it was an album and a 12-inch single and it was just a fantastically scary mm. and riveting choice of... Objects. Yes, yeah. yes, found objects. And so there was, I mean, naturally there was no picture of the band but there were uh, lots of images of mechanical stuff like bolts, nuts and bolts. There was, was a, a shrunken, calculator or a phone or something? Something along those lines, yeah. Yep. There was a shrunken human head which I yep. think think Perrano had on top of his gas slash hot water cylinder. He would have had that handy. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, There was some primitivist art, a little bit kind of Picasso-ish, a bit of rural Australian imagery thrown in. There's a photo of the back of a truck. And so it was just this extremely calculated, but also trying to look a little bit random and kind of mad as well. So it was... It's a really interesting piece of art mm. in its own right. And obviously, that's kind of lost in the modern day. But, uh, yeah, the gatefold sleeve of that album, I think, is just uh, extraordinary. I
2: was going to say very Melbourne. Very Melbourne. When we've mm-hmm. had these discussions before. <laughs> yes. Only a Melbourne band would do an album that looked like that. Mm, that's true. Um, that album, yeah, what did, what did we say? It got to number 21 in Australia. I think we can all agree on that, mm, yes. which <laughs> is which is not too bad. And Tony Cohen again.
0: How did it do in Sweden?
2: Uh, Sweden, I think it failed to chart. Okay. Um according to my sources, but um, the Swedes were never very accepting. No. <laughs> <laughs> no. Foreign music. Um, before I forget this, there's a live song from that period called Rendering Room, which if you have a chance to get onto YouTube, and Graham, you might be able to find it, is an extremely funky, great song, and I, for the life of me, don't know why it wasn't released. I've got a, a live bootleg of theirs from 81 or 82, 81 I think, with a version of it, and that's the only reason I know it and it's such a it's a great song it's a dance song it's as good as mm. anything that's out there and you see the audience getting down the band are dancing yeah, Mark yeah. Seymour's dancing in his white dinner jacket it's all very of its time yeah, and yeah. it's extremely cool yeah. for a band that said that they weren't cool that they weren't really thinking about these things I i have to say I don't agree with that I read a review of Mark's book by uh, Robert Forster of The Go-Betweens your favourite band yeah, yeah. Patrick and, and one of yours too Graham mm. <laughs> where he says uh, something interesting he talks about about Mark saying in the book, we were never cool, whatever cool was, we weren't it. And Robert Forster says, well, for a band that came out dressed in suits, that had this sound that signed with Virgin, which was the home of Public Image magazine, (laughs) uh, you know, XTC, all these amazing bands. You know, you were cool. You had this whole thing down pat. So to say that you weren't is completely, you know, missing the point and yeah, yeah, pretending yeah. that something wasn't going on, which it yeah, was. Yeah, no, that's right. So I, I, I think that's a fair call.
1: And there was always a lot of mystery to them as well because yeah. there were just so many of them mm. and their sound was so big and they didn't really play songs as such just extended jams. Mm. So, yeah, there was there was really something about them. Yeah. And they were, as you were saying, quite successful, so there was quite a bit of jealousy yeah. about their success because they were signed to Mushroom Records, one of the big labels. Made
2: so, made a special label for them. Yeah, yeah. Yep.
1: So in that sense, they would already sold out mm. their, in inverted commas, their single, they were on Countdown, the big music show, their
2: film clip. But was, they'd retained their cool yeah, as well. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely, yeah.
0: Okay, uh, so Payload is next. November 1982. November 1982, that's right, 29th of November. EP. Uh, It was their next EP and uh, at the time I didn't particularly like it but now it's probably my favourite Hunters and Collectors. I just said that in the bathroom.
1: I just thought that in the
0: bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> what were you guys doing in the bathroom? We were discussing what we would talk about next. <laughs> You've just told our listeners that you went to the bathroom. Well, you don't provide <laughs> any facilities in here, Graham, so I need to go. Yes. Um, yes.
2: Now, the interesting thing about Payload is that they went overseas. Well, they didn't go overseas, but they got an overseas producer in Mike Howlett from Gong. From Gong? We, we've spoken about him before. We have spoken about him. Uh, mm. Fijian born, a kind of Australian producer. Mm. Done some fantastic stuff over the years. Great bass player. Was involved in Strontium ninety with Sting. If mm-hmm. <laughs> you remember the that, pre police, police, pre um, police. He produced the EP, and it's astounding. It's, it's amazing. a four track EP. It's so good. Mm. The sound on it is phenomenal. It's really um, clarified what they were doing. Still no choruses. Yes. No, uh, no. We've got tow truck. Fantastic song, Great which is song. basically about their road crew, from what I can ascertain from the lyrics mm. and the sound. We built a yellow truck at and drove around this country.
1: Well, they went way past the Damasio line.
2: The distortion was incredible, apparently. <laughs> uh, also features drop tank, mouth trap, and my personal favourite, probably right up there amongst my top three, four favourite hunters and collector songs.
0: Lumps of lead.
2: Baseline. I was motivated to learn it last night after 30 years, and um, it's not that hard. You,
1: you have a guitar. Or something I have
2: like a, a, an acoustic guitar at home, but it's it's an incredible baseline. It's it's not that complicated, but there's something about the tension in it and the chorus mm, effect mm. on it. Graham will drop that in right about now, and it's um, <laughs> it's an absolute corker. So you've grown to love it, Graham. But I have grown from to from the beginnings it. of
0: not. I was just wondering whether I may have I didn't own it, but I may have borrowed it. From someone, and maybe I didn't give it much of a listen, and uh, I knew moved lumps, on. Maybe I, I knew lumps of lead. But just listening to it in these last uh, few days, as we review albums before we do our podcasts, I've just fallen in love with it. I've, what do you I've, like I've, about I've, it? I've played it because it's not
2: times. your stereotypical kind of sound. There is no catchy chorus. Once again, <clears throat> it's just a bass riff.
1: Well, really, it is catchy though. It is catchy as hell. But for I, Graham, I, 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 as I find, we know, he's a pop
0: meister. Mm. I'll tell you at the time, and this was in 1982 when I had my band in Brisbane and we were playing sort of quirky XTC-style pop songs at the time. I remember giving the other two guys, or, or at least playing them, Hunters and Collectors and saying, we should do something like that. So at this point, I was uh, moving away from songs and, and wanting to do this kind of thing. Extended grooves. Yeah. Mm. Like I was listening to funk and, and all sorts of things at the time too, but it was more this whole tribal thing, which, uh, by the way, um, I think I started listening to Shriek Pack at the time too. There's
2: There's definitely comparisons with mm. what was happening in that sound. Yeah. yeah. It's still very percussive, but it's dark and it's heavy. Mm. That's what I liked. It's dance music, but it's not really dance music as as such. Mm. (laughs) It's not chic. It's not chic at (laughs) all, no.
1: I've been listening to Huns and Collectors stuff prior to the podcast as well and I had always thought and still think that if aliens came to Earth and happened to Again with this? I've already told you my theory.
2: This is something you talk about daily.
1: (laughs) If aliens came to Earth and asked me what is the quintessential hunters and collectors recording, (laughs) why would they say
2: that? (laughs) Go with it, Graham. (laughs) This
0: is Patrick's thing. I
1: would say, look, I mean, admittedly, the odds are are a million to one.
0: So they say a million to one. <laughs> I reckon they'd say, "Take us to your leader." And have you heard of Hunters and Collectors? Yeah. So tell us about Hunters and Collectors.
1: Mm, mm. We like Fireman's Curse, however, <laughs> but I would point them towards the Payload EP as the best. The Hunters, and peak, peak, Hunters and Collectors. Peak Hunters and Collectors, as the kids peak say. Hunters, yes, absolutely. Yep. Okay, absolutely. So, y- yeah. Your I favourite mean, song on there? Uh, Lumps of Lead.
2: It's no, we, three we, we, for three. We've all gone lumps of lead. This is a rare thing, listen, <laughs> yeah. this The three of us never agree on anything. We can barely stand to be in the same room as each other. <laughs> that's <right>. and, yet, <laughs> we've regret- and yet we've agreed mm, on this. Mm. Sensational. But, and, and it's a what, breakthrough. Yeah, that's right. Mm.
1: That's right. And one of my favourite eccentric details, which you mentioned about Mike Howlett producing the EP, is that in recent months, he had produced "Iran," for A Flock of Seagulls. And there's, you know, no conceptual link whatsoever, as far as I can tell, between those two songs. I'll but give you a link.
2: Okay. A Flock of Seagulls, the band name comes from a Stranglers song. I didn't know. Yep, off Black and White. Uh, and J.J. Burnell was a, a bass player of some note. Yes. Mike Howlett was a bass player. Oh. Featured a lot of heavy kind of bass sounds. So I don't know. That's the only one no, no, that, That's, pretty good. That's, yeah, that's pretty good. that's not bad. That's not
1: bad. Certainly more than I was expecting. Maybe <laughs> when Mike was producing Floppers Seagulls. Yeah. Some Given kind. some of the stuff you've come up with in our podcast, <laughs> Mark, I was.
2: It makes more sense.
1: I was expecting something. Um, a, a lot less. It's like six,
0: <laughs> six degrees of Kevin Bacon. He sort of yeah, went that's from next. one band to the next. <laughs>
2: that's all I got. Um, yeah, interestingly, this EP charted in New Zealand. Mm. The Kiwis, they like their music. Number well, 31. Well, but what mm. about Sweden? Sweden, yet again, duck mm. egg, nothing. Mm. Not interested in Sweden.
1: Well, Greg Pirano was born in New Zealand.
2: He was. And he's still in the band at this point too. Yes, yep. yes. He's hanging on for grim death. <laughs> uh, the band is still numbering between 8 and 13. So, um, yeah, this was recorded in Australia. But um, yeah. this was the kind of a push for them to try to maybe have an international kind of impact. And mm. for the life of me, it's as good as anything that was out at the time, but, but you know, the snobbishness of the English press mm. probably contributed to Hunter's uh, failure on that front because they did move to England just after this EP. And
1: they arrived at Heathrow. They did. And what happened at Heathrow? Mark? Well, the,
2: the, the customs officer, as, the, as is the way in England, interrogated them and gave them a hard time because our English cousins aren't very welcoming to us when we go to England, <laughs> uh, as opposed to the way we, we treat the English when they come here. We... Welcome Embrace, the, boy, open arms. the warm embrace. Straight to Bondo for you, bro, no problem. Um, so the customs officer asked um, the band what, what sort of thing they did and Greg said, well, it's kind of reggae funk fusion with rock roots and a tinge of New York underground in the guitars. So that's a fairly complex answer to give <laughs> the immigration was, officer. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm, and the uh, customs officer, no doubt, nodded. Approvingly,
2: Yep, and waved them through because mm. there was a shortage of that kind of music in the UK at the time.
0: <laughs> right this way, is it? Mm. Yeah, right this I way. I love me Velvet Underground, oh, I so a, I does. I love a bit of television, I do.
1: <laughs> so Dick Van Dyke was a customs officer at the
2: time. <laughs> Dick Van Dyke with his English accent. Yeah, signed with Virgin for mm. uh, Worldwide Distribution to do their next album.
1: Yes, and um, then it all went kind of
0: went pear-shaped. Pear-shaped. pear-shaped,
2: yeah. The yes. Scene, an Indian restaurant. The
0: floor of, is yours again. Often
2: Mark. a cause of problems. What
0: happened in the Indian restaurant? Well, they went out to dinner with Simon
2: Draper, the head of uh, the famous head of um, Virgin at the time. Mm-hmm. A few curries were consumed, a few too many beers mm-hmm. were consumed. Mm-hmm. And uh, over the course of the evening, one of the members of the band basically said to Simon Dra- Draper that he was a jumped up, poncy little blue blood that didn't understand them. And, you know, basically had no concept of what they were about. So uh, there was a falling out and uh, everyone went their separate ways and the band refused to back down and apologise and kind of uh, try to make amends. And um, I think the next day Simon went into the office and said, you know, they'll never work in this town again, mm, basically. Yeah, yeah. Wow. And uh, that was the end of Hunters and Collectors uh, so mm. far. But they stayed in England. They did the usual Aussie thing in London of working miserable jobs and living in a, a freezing hellhole and uh, trying to, you know, they played gigs in Newcastle, in, in Scotland, and England, a few places, and, and got good reviews, right. But just couldn't get anywhere. Yeah, yeah. As yeah. was the style at the time.
1: Mm. And then they um, they decamped to Germany.
2: They did, and uh, took up with Connie Plank, famous uh, Can member, Kraftwerk producer, um, German legend of you know many things that he was involved in uh, in Cologne to record the second album, which was uh, The Fireman's Curse. Released in September '83.
1: And do you remember hearing Farman's Ghost? I do. This time, yeah. What, what were you? Impressed?
2: I really liked it. it I, I think I probably saw a video for Judas Sheep or Sway, one of the first, uh, one of the singles, mm. either or, one of those. Um,
1: as the Sydney Morning Herald called it, Judas Priest.
2: Judas Priest. Yep, close enough. I'm a big fan of this album. It's it's the quintessential difficult second album. Mm. It's a bit interesting. It's a bit weird. The lyrics are a little bit. Obscure, more obscure. You know, for me, there's some great songs on there. I don't know yeah. what you guys think. I Sway mean, "Sway" is a great song. "Curse" yep. is another one. "Blind
1: Snack Sunday."
2: Yep, I like "Fish Raw."
1: "Fish Raw" is hilarious.
2: Great lyrics, yeah. ridiculous lyrics. Mm. Um, "Judas Sheep" I think is a great song. Um, I also like "Egg Heart."
1: Right. Yes. Yeah.
2: But the lyrics are out there, and it's it's certainly a continuation of this kind of arty aesthetic. That they had kind of pushed. Mm. But it was it was more complex, more interesting, whereas the first album was kind of like one song in many ways. It was one continuous song revisited. I think Fireman's Curse had a lot more interest. It was really quite arty and quite deep.
1: fact that Judas Sheep was the chosen single, mm. which is one of the... And they had a li- video
2: made for it too, didn't they? But I think Judas Sheep and sure Sway either, had uh, sure videos, so they obviously backed it To a degree.
1: But they released arguably the least commercial song on the album as a single. A song I would describe as the most unlistenable of Hunters and Collectors' career. Really? Most of the rest of the album. There were a couple of more frenetic songs on there, which I'm not a huge fan of. I preferred the kind of medium-paced, grinding, kind of funky tribal sort of stuff. The bass
2: was still very much to the fore, though. Mm,
1: Yeah, certainly the songs that you mentioned I do really like, but songs like Mr Right is another one that I didn't didn't really fancy. Look,
2: there's a couple of odd choices on there, but there's a good 70% is worthwhile. Graham. how did you feel? Did you bother listening to uh, Fireman's Curse when it came out in September 1983? Yeah, no, I did hear that. Because, you weren't waiting uh, with
0: bated breath for it? I was seeing them live at the time and I liked Jesus Sheep, unlike Patrick. Mm. Mm. Sway was my favourite song. I only just found out today that was a single as well. Yeah, two singles. I think after the disappointment of Payload, um, <laughs> <laughs> I really liked Fireman's Curse and now I realise I was completely wrong about Payload. But How down. do you think Feynman's curse
2: stands up now, um, some 35 uh, years later? <laughs>
0: think it's really strong like it's up there with the early street bank stuff like tench it's exploring similar territory Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i mean you know i guess that's what we wanted to hear we wanted
2: to hear kind of out Mm. there stuff like this and it was certainly challenging Mm. i think the production was better it seemed to have more space in the sound the guitar was more interesting because i think Mm. um Mark was just playing the guitar at this point.
1: Ray Tosti Guerra Oguera had left and been replaced by Martin Lubrin. Oh, okay. So and, there were two guitarists. So I think Martin Lubrin co-wrote a handful of the songs on Farman's Curse*. Uh, he's certainly
2: listed uh, as one of the songwriters. Mm,
1: yeah, yeah.
2: Um, and uh, and Greg is still involved. I keep mentioning Greg because he's kind of like that weird element. I think that they missed when he left. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah, he's absolutely. he's a, he's an interesting guy. Mm. Um, and he brings something quite different um, to the band and I think once he left, it was obviously a very much a different direction taken.
1: Mm. I had seen Hunters two or three times in the weeks or months prior to Farmer's Curse coming out, or at least that's my recollection. And So, so I, they were back in Australia so so by well, then? Well, yeah, I thought I had heard most of the album live before the actual album came out mm. and again, I think I was disappointed by the recording because it felt a little bit flat compared to the endlessly expansive live sound. Yeah. They had And I was also disappointed Because they were such A huge favourite band of mine And mm. I desperately
2: wanted them to, you, know, you
1: wanted to, to love them
2: To be massive
1: I wanted mm. them to be massive Worldwide And mm. this album Had no single on it And clearly wasn't Going to be massive
2: No um, It, it wasn't word. a step forward In many ways It mm. was kind of like Maintaining a similar ground But yeah. you could tell That there was tension Within the band And yeah. things Things weren't going very well
1: And word had filtered through To the Australian music press That they'd failed
2: Yeah you know, Another band Gone to England And, and come back with their tail Between their legs, Like
1: Masters Apprentices before them. And I was going to say
2: ACDC, <laughs> but no, that worked out quite well. <laughs> yeah. um, the only post-punk band that ever did anything in England were The Birthday Party, and I don't know why they succeeded where others failed, but they were actually successful. There's a list mm. of bands that went there and everybody, it was the holy grail to go to England, excuse the pun, and, and do something <laughs> because the bands that everybody admired came from England mm. and no one succeeded. Mm. But interestingly, Hunters had, had kind of started to take root in America a little bit more than in England. And there's an interesting story where um, apparently in 84, which is just a little bit after this, Hunters had had played, uh, were playing a tour, a small tour through the States. And this was when Greg was still in the band, the whole band was still holding it together. And um, a young kid came backstage with a copy of the first album and uh, asked if he could get it signed and, and and Mark was pretty grumpy and pissed and wasn't happy. And But anyway, I mean, I know this is a small band that should be, like, grateful that anybody wants their record signed. <laughs> anyway, he signs the record, passes it around, the whole band signs the, um, the album. And um, years later... Eddie Vedder of Pearl Jam tells the story that he was that kid in San Diego in 1984. <laughs> he was a really wow. big fan of theirs and and asked to come backstage and got his album signed, wow. and still has the album. Yeah, and so years later performed a version of um, "Throw Your Arms Around Me" with Mark Seymour live. But it's it's funny that yeah, they were having yeah. an influence on kind of seminal bands, you know, or seminal people, I suppose, around the world without being really known. At mm. all, Just mm-hmm. interesting that that could happen.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, regarding Farman's Curse, uh, one review of it described the album as slightly contrary to, to our view, an unmitigated disaster. Wow. An awful collection of tuneless songs full of twisted invective and apocalyptic moaning. Sounds good. And that was a quote from Hunters and Collectors vocalist Mark Seymour.
2: <laughs> that was his <laughs> quote. Yeah. See, that's really interesting, which, which which brings me to kind of, we're not quite at that point, but... But Mark really plays down these, these first three mm. albums. We haven't got to the third album, but the other band members don't have a lot to say about it, but he will he will basically pay these albums out and these
0: songs out without too much prompting mm. in any interview I've read with him anyway. We haven't spoken about this, but he is the brother of Nick Seymour, the uh, bass player of Crowded House. Do you think that after a while he kind of maybe resented his, brother's, his little brother's success and thought that he could do the same, which is why the Hunters and Collectors music became a little bit more accessible later on in the career. I think it
2: might be a factor, but but I think he just got sick of not getting anywhere with mm. it. But... From what we've learnt about them early days, it was was such a collective kind of this kind of almost communist idea of everybody being equal that no one was allowed to stand up and say what they wanted to do and everybody had to contribute equally and I think he found that frustrating. Yeah, yeah. Because he's the lead singer and eventually he's writing the lyrics and writing the songs and at some point I guess he wants to be credited for that and also wants to take the band in the direction he wants to go in.
1: And as far as his kid brother was concerned, Nick Seymour was playing in bands who were playing around the traps, like Crowded House ended up being, you know, a, a massive global success. But in 1982, 83, Nick Seymour was playing in a band called Plays with Marionettes oh, yes. with um, Hugo Race, a founding member of Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds. Mm-hmm. And so he was just another
2: another Melbourne music,
1: local musician and Hunters and Collectors were far more successful than, than Plays with Marionettes, you know, yeah. ar- around that time. It would only be human nature to feel you know, pangs, human some, frailty, human even human frailty, yes, some pangs of jealousy to see your brother become exceptionally rich. He said that. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> uh, that yeah. must
2: make for some interesting Christmas lunches. <laughs> <laughs> I'll get, I'll get this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Mum, the successful son will pour the gravy. <laughs> um, I, I really like this album. I know we've we finished talking about it, but I'm still a fan of it, and I think it's a really um, a great signpost. In the yes. Hunter's story.
1: And then there was a seismic shift.
2: There was. Which
1: uh, The following year?
2: 83? 84. 84.
1: They came back from Europe. Mark Seymour looks out the window on the arid, broad Australian outback.
2: The wide brown land. The seed
1: germinates as to what he wants to write about, what he wants to think about, the direction for the band, all those sorts of things. At the same time, he hasn't spoken to Greg Pirano for a year. That's right. Um
2: tensions are building.
1: So basically the band sacked Greg Perrano and Martin Lubrin, the other guitarist, left at the same time. And the way Mark Seymour tells the story, it was basically Mark gambling that he was more important to the band than Greg Perrano was. So it's like, okay guys, choose between me and him. And You need hot
2: water. <laughs> I don't know. It's a big call <laughs> right. to get rid of the gas cylinder <laughs> mm, hot water right. heater.
1: So he correctly assessed Mark Seymour correctly assessed that he was more important to the band than Greg Parano. So basically, Mark Seymour sacked Greg Parano, which interesting. interestingly enough, interesting story. Interestingly enough, happened uh, again. couple of poor Greg. A couple of things twice. We need, we need to set this up. <laughs> we need to set this up properly. Well, but uh, one of our podcast members shares not just a first name but a second name both names with the Hunters and Collectors lead singer Mark Seymour um and you have a story to tell about... I've also
2: <laughs> sacked Greg Pirano. now <laughs> now listeners you may not believe this is true but I I had to actually let Greg go <laughs> um not from the playing actually he was playing music I was working in a um as a Waitress in a cocktail bar. <laughs>
0: um,
2: no, I was working in a, in a store that uh, employed the services of a DJ and a uh, 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 clothing store. store. Hmm. And um, the owner of the store decided it was a great idea to get the um, sort of you know well-known guy from the Deadly Hume and Hunters and Collectors. This was Greg, in Sydney. In Sydney, Greg Pirano to play some vinyl in the store um, as a way of getting people to come into the store on weekends. So um, he did that and um, got him to do that for some time. But Greg. Would do that but wasn't really interested in serving customers or um, folding the T-shirts or um,
0: doing the other little
2: things that you've got to do in a clothing store. So he would just sit sit there and play his records, which was great, but it wasn't generating any income. So it came to me.
1: What sort of records?
2: uh, His own records, just his own eclectic collection of things, whatever he felt like playing, vinyl. Uh, this was in Surrey Hills in Sydney, so this went on for probably a month or so. And at a certain point, the uh, the owner of the business took me aside and said, "Even even though I made this decision to do this, I want you to take care of it." So I had to go and say to Greg that um, he would no longer be required. His services would no did you longer... go up to
0: him and say, "Listen, my name is Mark Seymour. Yeah, so you, you know, know how this you, is going to go. How this is going to pan out." <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> no, but it was kind of unpleasant because I I wasn't involved in the decision initially, and hmm. I felt it was a kind of a – ill-conceived idea at best. Um, Greg, it, go,
1: it, it goes against your nature too.
2: I'm happy to sack people, but oh, okay, Greg's I'm a sorry. nice guy. I've never read you. Greg's a lovely guy and he's very chilled out and very kind of, he's almost a kind of a surfy dude. I think he is a surfer. Did he actually. have the gas cylinder with him? He did not have the gas cylinder, luckily for me, at the time. <laughs> but um, he, wasn't, he wasn't too happy about it, but, you know, we still see each other and he, I think we're okay. <laughs> so true story. So, yes, I do share the same name uh, with Mark, the singer, though. His middle name is Brendan.
1: And right. Mine is Gregory. So that's why uh, when you were playing in bands in the 1980s, you didn't get um,
2: checks. I did um, get checks for him. I received <laughs> uh, several APRA checks for Mark Seymour. Um, APRA, being, APRA being the Australian Performing Rights Association mm-hmm. uh, collective. Um, I think I got one for 75 cents, another for $1.20 at the time. Mistaken identity. Easy mistake. Well, he to he make. was really raking it in at the time. <laughs> he was making the big bucks. Yeah. Um. Yes. Yeah, so yeah, that's my connection with Mark Seymour and Greg Ferrara. <laughs> Good story. Thanks, guys. Thanks for letting me share Ooh, that.
1: Yeah. <laughs> it's almost unbelievable, and yet.
0: And yet, it's absolutely true.
1: So, meanwhile, back in seismic
0: light, shift has uh, happened. Are we, uh, yes. Uh, are we getting to the jaws of life?
2: we are getting to the jaws of life the 1984 opus august 84 another connie plank venture produced connie plank a really interesting point beyond which they never really um they never came back from this i think it's a fantastic album mm. opens with 42 wheels sound of a truck starting up i think it's the story of an outback trucker got drunk and killed five five people, people ran them over in the Alice, or in, somewhere in the outback so yeah you're right really australian really about Mm. Um, a a real angle about this country. Mm. It's a fantastic song.
1: You used the key word there, which is song, Mm. and Mark Seymour... The other one. ...from Hunters and Collectors... The other guy. ...said said of Greg Pirano's departure, uh, the idea that you could build a repertoire based solely on jamming was Pirano's. It was a romantic notion that allowed the band's egalitarian culture to flourish and Mm. one that I grew to hate. So you can tell... Instantly the difference between Farman's curse and Jaws of Life in that mm. Jaws of Life is a collection of songs and not remotely about jamming
0: mm, yeah there are more songs in Maximo's strumming you know there's not the little riffy things that he' was doing he was, he was actually he was holding down a D which as, is also as, a <laughs> fantastic song as the song says
2: but I think he really made an effort to write songs. To actually say, I'm going to write mm. songs, narrative songs, about things. Mm. And, and he certainly did do that. It included, um, I believe, a Ray Charles cover, Ray which Charles is their song, first yeah. cover. Uh, but it sits really nicely in the context of this album. We can't talk about this album without mentioning Betty's Worry or The Slab. I was looking to
1: see some dream.
2: If you've had a chance to have a look at the video recently, it's 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 really Melbourne. Mm. It shows Mark carrying a slab of beer trying to cross a road Mm, to get to a pub or something. Yeah, where there's some serious dancing going on. But what kind of dancing is it? Sharpie, Sharpie dancing, Mm. and I think um, Jack Howard has the cardigan on and the whole kind of Sharpie thing, which is a Melbourne cult. mm. If like anyone's an like early, early early seventies, kind of based on the kind of skinhead cults in the, mm. in England, but that kind of I don't know what you call the dancing, but if you mm. if you can kind of have a look at it, it's it's all part of that, and they mm. do it really well. And
1: I believe um, the trumpeter Jack Howard did actually choreograph. Right, but yeah, it is it is fantastic and hilarious, and the song. Is
2: the song just, is just just out there. I remember going out with friends of mine and dancing to this song mm. in, yeah. in clubs, and there would be that little bit where they go, and everything'll be all right, and we'd all do it. Mm. And the bass line has to be probably the greatest bass line in Australian music history I'm going to go out there and say that is an insane bass line And you watch him play it live And you just go like, where did he come up with this? Mm. Because there's nothing else really going on in the song but Mm. this It's a strange song with this tribal drumbeat behind it It's still a fantastic song to this day
0: And also, Mark Seymour, his vocal delivery was great. Like, a lot of his personality came out Mm. in that song. And I reckon more so in that song than anything he did later. Like, I remember listening to him sing this song. And even, I think, we must have seen it live. I'm sure I saw it live. We did. And it was great just to watch him perform the song. It almost looked like he was really enjoying singing it. I think they found a new direction Mm. that he was more comfortable with. They toured relentlessly.
2: They played live a lot. They completely jettisoned any of their old songs. There's there's, um, reviews of this era where people are calling out, talking to a stranger, lumps Mm. of lead, and he's like, lumps of what? And (laughs) and won't play any of those songs. (laughs) They're just playing a completely new set and he describes it as almost the beginnings of the band. Yeah. Mm. The old band is is dead Mm. as far as he's concerned. Um, You've got another song like Red Lane, which is a great song. Carry Me is one of mm. the best songs to this day and probably they still play it live, I don't know. Little Chalky. Little Chalky still gets a number. But mm. they're, they're still, they're songs, but they're more tribal drums, yeah, yeah. they're more pared down. Yeah. Um, you can see there's a real clear... Delineation between mm, those mm. and this.
1: And lyrically, I guess I always hear the music before I hear the lyrics. I'm pretty slow for the lyrics to sink in, but you can tell how the esoteric, really peculiar lyrics of the, the first arguments. two albums have just gone yeah. completely. In retrospect, here, the absence of Greg Pirano you really can in, see it yeah. in the lyrics, and they sound very much like Mark Seymour's lyrics.
2: Well, they're narratives, they're songs mm. about him and Australia and all yeah. that stuff, they kind of found a niche. It was, mm. a, But it was almost the beginning of the end, I suppose, from where we sit because mm. I love this album yeah. and I do like the subsequent live album, The Way To Go Out, which features basically just songs from this yeah. and yeah. Um, Throw Your Arms Around Me, mm. which became you know the song that we all know now. Yeah. But there was a real sort of jumping off point for this and they made a conscious decision to, um, to change yeah. direction. Yeah.
1: They'd had songs like boo-boo kiss and run-run-run with their three or four minutes of them chanting moto-koda. So Mm. almost like sounds more than words and to go from that to really intimate domestic dramas of the Jaws of Life lyrics and really direct. Although, again, Mark Seymour describes Jaws of Life as being quite pretentious compared (laughs) to Human Frailty and and, and subsequent albums and and it feels really intimate to me lyrically as an album so I don't quite Mm. know where he's coming from. Interestingly,
2: it was their worst performing album of the three in Australia. Mm. Can't vouch for Sweden. I think it was another no show in Sweden, but it <laughs> charted at 89 in Australia, like yeah. which is barely worth mentioning.
1: Yeah, the subsequent live album charted fractionally better, mm. like 10 places
2: or whatever. They were pulling big crowds yeah, at that yeah, time, yeah. too. I remember seeing them in Ballarat and, you know, provincial sort of gigs. <laughs> uh, and they were fantastic. They mm. were awesome live, as good as they'd ever been. But yeah, absolutely. They completely jettisoned any of the old songs, though. They just wouldn't yeah, play, yeah, yeah. Would yeah. Not play them. It was kind of frustrating for the crowd too. Yeah, it was well, frustrating. I was, it's a bit of a shame, really.
1: Yeah. Mm. yeah, well, I was frustrated because I loved, you know, yeah. as we all did, the Run, Run, Runs, the Talking to a Stranger's, yeah, the Blind Snake Sunday, your lumps of lead, mm. Yeah, mm. your lumps of lead. Yeah,
0: I, I really liked uh, Haley's doorstep. Oh, sorry, I didn't yeah, mean to yeah. cut you off there, but I really liked Haley's doorstep.
2: I think mm-hmm. this album, you could pull out, you know, seven or eight songs. It's a really good album. It sounds mm. fantastic. Connie Plank did a fantastic yeah. job on it. Yeah. it. It's just kind of annoying the way that. That Mark in particular has dismissed the previous output, mm. just like with a sweep of the hand, to say mm. that that was all pretentious, mm. Mad Max inspired gobbledygook. You know, that wasn't <laughs> anything that we were really about. No, this is the real thing.
1: Jaws of Life is nothing like gobbledygook. It's a really f- focused, yeah. almost like an Aussie concept album. Mm. Um, yeah, listening to it again, and I was, I was a I, I didn't hugely get into it at the time because I loved how big the sound had been previously mm. and it wasn't at all eccentric or it was much less eccentric sonically. It was much more standard even though it, listening back to it now, it's, it's really... Well, John
2: Archer's bass is still mm. front you know, and centre in everything that they did on that album. Yeah. Fantastic. Mm. And the drumming's great as well. There's not much else in it though. No. It's not. drums and bass. A few bits of brass and whatever else. But, yeah, they're very stripped down.
1: But, again, they were they were struggling completely to kind of get cut through on commercial radio. They'd been ignored pretty much with every album despite the fact that they had the Mushroom Records push behind them. So what could they do but record a single of a slightly more commercial song, arguably, that they had up their sleeve well, post Jaws of Life, well, if, they, we, if we've got to that stage? They had
2: that around. Throw Your Arms Around Me was released about... 12 times, I think. They tried to have a hit with it. (laughs) Maybe I'm (laughs) exaggerating. They Mm. tried to have a hit with it over and over again and I don't know how many times it took before it it became a hit, but it's become...
1: It it never was a hit, I don't think.
2: Well, it's become one of those Aussie bogan anthems Mm. in a way. um, Yeah, yeah. Which, you know, leads me to, I don't know. I do like the song, but I'm kind of sick to death of it.
1: So, Throw Your Arms Around Me came out... After uh, this? Yeah.
2: So Between between the two albums? mm. Is that right?
1: Uh, between Jaws of Life and Human Frailty, which was the breakthrough album and that yep. featured a version of Throw Your Arms Around Me as well. But there were
2: several versions. There's mm. a live version, yeah. there were single yeah, versions that was released again. It's a great song. I mean it is a great song, mm. I, I don't mind admitting that. Graham, you're a you're a tunesmith, you can you can appreciate a song <laughs> like this.
0: I just remember being shocked by it when I saw it. When I, Underwhelmed? When I first heard it. It was like. Why is he doing this? I was a bit underwhelmed, but it. it wasn't something that I thought, "Wow, this is fantastic." But more importantly, they'd just done Betty's Worry, you know, yeah. <laughs> which I loved, and I thought, you know, "Are you going to do more, more of this? that?" Yeah, yeah. <laughs>
2: but what is that song? What mm. is it? What's it doing? I don't yeah. even know. Once yeah. again, it's got no chorus. It's just this yeah, yeah, baseline. Yeah, yeah. Actually, that, that is
1: genuinely eccentric, and it does have remnants of the Hunters and Collectors building and building and building, like instrumental bit in the second half of it.
2: Obviously, this was the way forward and subsequently, Human Frailty, the the following Mm. album, was probably their first genuine hit, uh, yeah, 84? Yeah. 85. 85. Yeah, w- yeah. Was where the beginnings of the Hunters yeah. and Collectors that people probably know, if they know them, mm. um, well, it, began.
1: I remember um, in 1984, I don't think Hunters had played for a while and I saw them play at Melbourne Uni and Mark Seymour comes on stage, opening song, and he says, this is a new one and it was Throw Your Arms Around Me. Right. And I thought it was great and I thought this could finally be the hit single. And, yeah. and, and I was really pleased because it was a great song. And then they released it as a single mm. and... And almost as if they were trying to sabotage their own success, they didn't go into the studio and do a proper multi-track, polished or at least semi-polished recording. They did, I think, basically a live two-track mm. recording absolutely as, as as rough as guts. Mm. And the cover art for the single doesn't have, you know, Valentines on it. It's got a ring of intertwined disembodied arms. It's got the band name stamped on the cover as if it's from a shipping container. It's got the number one dot and then throw your arms around me in handwritten scrawl. It's like these guys were desperate for the song to fail (laughs) because it would have killed their career if it had been a hit. So this was the post-punk conundrum.
2: But they were sort of almost post-post-punk at this Mm. point because they were desperate to have a hit yeah, or to, to break out of that.
1: But they knew. What they had on their hands. Mm. They knew they had a number one single on their hands if they played their cards wrongly. Well, I think, yeah, I think
2: Mark with this song dragged the rest of the band along with him. Mm. I think that's the easiest way of looking at it. He decided the direction of the band from now on and and subsequently the following however many years 15, 18 years that they uh, kept going.
1: Certainly in subsequent years, Human Frailty is an album that I like. I think Say Goodbye is a great song that could easily have slotted in on Jaws of Life.
2: Is it their sparkle in the rain? Sparkle in
1: the rain. Well, I quite quite like that occasionally maligned Simple Minds album. Okay.
2: I love that album. Mm. But it's it's the turning point. Yeah, you yeah, can yeah. see a clear kind of left yeah. turn Let, to go. Let's have hits. Let's have hits, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Mm. That's all I'm trying to say.
1: And it's one of the peculiarities if we're at the kind of summing up stage. I think that we are. We are. When you think about where they were as a band, how important as a band they were to us and just as I think they were the best live band in the world, you know, at a certain time. I can't imagine there being a better live band in the world yeah. in like eight, 82-ish, 83
2: Electrifying. Yeah. It sound was incredible. Yeah. As good as anything I ever heard live mm. to this day. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
1: And the fact that their fame has come from a song that they've gradually kind of smoothed out the rough edges of, Th- Throw Your Arms Around Me, and another song, Holy Grail, which has become a, like big, a big Aussie AFL, AFL r- grand final yeah. song. So Mark Seymour has come out to sing the song before three or four or five. Australian Rules Football Grand Finals in the last decade or so, it's become the you know, one of the Australian Rules Football songs, mm. and I don't mind the song, but it's so unexceptional compared to the utter genius of a lot of their earlier stuff. Yeah, mm, that's right. it's no it's, boo
2: boo kiss. Mm. It's no <laughs> <boo-boo>
1: kiss.
0: <laughs> yeah. So yeah. I'd love to hear boo-boo kiss before an AFL Grand Final. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> boo-boo kiss. <laughs> kiss.
2: What? <laughs> yeah, not going to happen. No. Um,
0: so we're at the, the summing up.
2: hmm the summary? Yeah. Brian,
0: you got anything to add? I don't know whether whether this is a, a good point to end on, but during the 80s, Dame Edna Everidge took over The Tonight Show in America and um, she interviewed Crowded House. And the, each member of Crowded House was there, including Nick Seymour. And as a special treat to um, Dame Edna, they played throw your arms around me they said this is uh, the song written by Nick's brother
2: and uh, I and saw seven
0: other people yeah <laughs> I saw that just recently and I thought that's probably the most people who ever heard a hunters and collectors mm. song was was that night mm. they had millions of viewers on the, on the Tonight Show and that still mm. wasn't a hit it still wasn't a Yeah. I actually so don't know why they played it, but I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna play a little bit mm. of it. on, the, on Play the, on a little it. bit of it.
1: When Nick's brother heard that you were going to be on the show, Dame, that we he'd knocked together a song, and it's mm. called "Throw Your Arms Around Me."
0: And we may never meet again. So shed your skin and let's get started. And you will thrive.
2: I'm gonna finish up this because I I usually do those things. I think Hunters are the Australia's most overrated and underrated band <laughs> because they're overrated for their post-Jaws of Life output and underrated for those first three albums, mm. which Mark Seymour is pretty much mostly responsible for because he's the one that tends to downplay how great that stuff was. And I'm telling you, if they played some gigs now and pulled out Talking to a Stranger and a few other songs, people would go nuts. It's still really important stuff and, and you can have a, a journey on a band. You don't have to deny the past and the stuff that they did was, was as good as anything and for an Australian post-punk audience craving something local that was as good as anything as there was on a world stage, the Hunters and Collectors delivered that to us in those first three albums and I think uh, that should never
0: be forgotten.